morning, glory America, bonjour, hi, Canada. Greetings, everyone. On Friday morning, the last radio hour of the week is always dedicated to the Hillsdale Dialogue, usually with Dr. Larry Arn, who is with us this week, and also sometimes one of his colleagues. We are very fortunate to have back Dr. Paul Ray, the Charles O. Lee and Louis Key Lee Chair in Western Heritage. He's a Yale and a Rhodes Scholar, but we like Paul anyway because he really knows his stuff. And that does compensate for the uh, the slings and arrows that Dr. Oren sends my way. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, by the way, Dr. Oren, I, I received a book this week by Robert Riley, America on Trial, A Defense of the Founding. Its foreword is by a fellow named Larry Arn, which, of course, makes me reluctant to open the book. But what is this all about? It'll bite you. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah Bob is a... Uh... <laughs> I had graduate student classes with Bob Rowley forever and a day ago, and the book is great. It's a sort of a, it's called America on, on Trial, but I say in the foreword that what it's really about is the long history of what is being lost, going back goodness sakes to pre-classical times, and it's a very powerful book. And um, uh, also, uh, Bob is uh, teaches waltz and uh, stages the annual uh, waltz for Western Civilization in the Red Cross building across from the White House and reviews classical music for various magazines. He's a polymath. Like well, then I, then I shall read him. I, yeah. shall read your, I shall read the introduction. I read him. Dr. Ray, welcome back. I hope you're enduring the pandemic with your typical poise, and you've probably dug deeper into your studies and produced three more books since last we spoke. <laughs> you know what I did? I... I I went through the entirety of Boccaccio's Decameron. That's what I did. Isn't that a coincidence? That's what I did. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Paul, you really do make a lot of us feel kind of slow. You you turn me into a Steelers fan when you show up on the show. Now, Arn never does that to me, but you do. And so I, (laughs) I want you to slow down for us folks out here, us normal people. Uh, Dr. Ray, last week we talked about Xenophon and Cyrus. This week and next we're going to talk about two Athenians. I'm going to let you pick the order. Tell us about both and tell us why you picked the order the way you do since ancient Greece is your uh, your fort. Ah, well, I had thought we would do Alcibiades first, but I'll pick Good. Thucydides we will. first. We w- oh, you will. Oh, you would. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's... Um... Uh, you know, Alcibiades is a character in Thucydides, so why not start with Thucydides? Then uh, we will. Yeah, and you know, I'm struck. I, I'm struck by three things. Let me read a brief quotation from W. H. Auden. Exiled Thucydides knew all that a speech can say about democracy and what dictators do. The elderly rubbish they talked to an apathetic grave analyzed all in his book. The enlightenment driven away, the habit-forming pain, mismanagement and grief, we must suffer them all again. Uh, the title of the poem is September 1st, 1939. Oh, It's the oh day World War II broke out, and he wrote it that day in a bar in Greenwich Village. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the second passage uh, that I want to quote to you um, comes from uh, George Catlin Marshall, Secretary of State, 1947. Uh, and he said uh, uh, that if you want to understand things, uh, you need to look back to, an ancient, to the ancient Athenian, Thucydides, 
for an understanding of the state affairs current in his own time and expressed to a university audience, then he expressed to a university audience grave doubts as to whether, quote, a man can think with full wisdom and with deep convictions regarding certain of the basic international issues today, who has not at least reviewed in his mind the period of the Peloponnesian War and the fall of Athens. I didn't know George Marshall had ever said that. That's quite Yeah, well, you know, if you think about it, Athens versus Sparta is a sea power versus land power. Uh, the United States versus uh, Germany in World War One and World War Two against Russia in the Cold War and now against China is a sea power versus a land power. That's part of the story. Uh-huh. 1983, uh, uh, the Nobel Prize winning poet Cheslav Milos says people always live within a certain order and are unable to visualize a time when it might cease to exist. The sudden crumbling of all current notions and criteria is a rare occurrence, characteristic of only the most stormy periods in history. Then he adds, with regard to the rapid and violent changes of the 20th century, uh, that the only possible analogy may be the time of the Peloponnesian War as we know it from Thucydides. Wow. Dr. Ryan, how do you react to that? That's an introduction of introductions to Thucydides, and I'm glad we inverted the order I had suggested, which is why we have Paul Ray around. But what, what do you make to those three quotes? Well, the times in which we live, uh, all of them encourage in turbulent times, World War II and now, to look back at the past. And, and the great thing about the past is it's complete, uh, it, it, uh, what's going on about us right now is swirling, and we don't know the outcome. But, uh, but what, what happened in Thucydides' time is complete, and there's a master observer who writes up its character and nature so we can understand it. And that will help us find patterns that can help us predict as well as we can predict. You know, Dr. Ray, the, uh, the first time I heard of uh, or actually read seriously, it was probably mentioned in high school, but I did not read the Peloponnesian Wars in high school, was in an international relations class in 1974, talked by a guy named Stanley Hoffman, who insisted on the first day that we read the Melian Dialogue. And so it's actually the first thing I encountered in a serious way. Would you tell the audience what this book is about? I mean, just give them a general overview. Well, Thucydides wrote it, uh, these are his words, as a possession for all times. And it's a book uh, aimed at teaching statesmanship to people with an aptitude for it, but who need to learn. And he juxtaposes uh, in the book, he gives obituaries of two figures, Themistocles, who didn't need any training. He understood everything by nature. And then he speaks of Pericles, and he doesn't say the same thing about Pericles. He, he, he damns him in a way with faint praise. And the the intimation is Pericles is a man who learned from experience. Now, he learned from the experience that he went through himself. What Thucydides does with the book is he provides us with that experience imaginatively. So we can work our way through the war. And one of the things he, he avoids doing, uh, he, he does it occasionally, but very rarely, is tell you what to think about it. He provides you with all the information that you need to think it through yourself. So he sets puzzles for you. Uh, And those puzzles are things that if you can figure them out, 
you can apply the same kind of reasoning to current circumstances. Uh, in other words, the, the trick is to see the patterns and to learn to discern the patterns. Uh, and so it, it, uh, I wrote an essay some years ago called Thucydides as Educator, and, and I wrote it for a, a collection of, for military history, for military – well, really for uh, officer training uh, for the Marine Corps University and, and so forth. And I gave a talk at Sandhurst and at the Marine Corps University on this, that Thucydides' task is to teach you to think, not to teach you what to think. You know, you know uh, Dr. Arm, we're going to come back from break and talk about Dr. Ray's approaching new book, Sparta's Second Attic War. But I wonder, have, have you taught Thucydides as well? Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. No, I, mean, I meant Larry. Shut up. I know you have, Paul, but I, was, yeah, I meant yeah. Larry. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's. Uh, I will add to what Paul said and detract nothing, that uh, uh, Thucydides is a tremendous read. It's uh, you know it's it's a very it's a very serious book, it's it's a book for all time as Paul says, but also it's the story of a whacking big war that went on for 27 years and that, you know, broke the power of all of Greece by the time it was over, and uh, and you know and so there are twists and turns and there are these tremendous characters in it, and you get to meet them. And then another thing that's great about it, Paul has written about this, because Paul's writing this series of books on Sparta that are as authoritative as his earlier books on republics ancient and modern. There's going to be a lot of them. There's, he's up to like 50 now. Uh, but uh, but uh, it, 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 Thucydides takes you into the council rooms, and he contrives the speeches for them, probably based on what he's heard, but also what would have been the right thing to say. Absolutely. It's just amazing how... When we come back, we'll talk about how that happens. There's a Periclean oration which schoolboys used to learn. Perhaps they still do. We'll find out. With Dr. Larry Aaron, president of Hillsdale College, Paul Ray, a great professor at Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. And, of course, they're all collected eight years of these conversations at youforhillsdale.com. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway this week with Dr. Larry Arn and next week with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and his colleague, Professor Paul Ray, one of our favorite guests. We're talking this week about Thucydides and the Peloponnesian War and next week about a character therein. Let me ask you, Dr. Ray, you've got a book coming out, I mean, next week, August 4th. Yeah, uh, Sparta, Sparta's Second Attic War, the grand strategy of classical Sparta. I, I, first of all, I don't think I've ever seen it referred to as their Second Attic War. Is that new to you? And would you give the listener some idea what the first one was, which we talked about last week, and which obviously influences the Peloponnesian War? Right. Well, I, I call it the Attic War because the Peloponnesians called it the Attic War. Ah, uh, so I, I steal that from, from Thucydides, actually, who quotes them to that effect. Uh, and Thucydides never calls it the Peloponnesian War. He calls it the war between the Athenians and the Peloponnesians. Uh, it, 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 uh, it, so what am I trying to do with these books? Well, I'm trying to look at it from an angle that people don't normally look at it from. We are Athenocentric. It's perfectly understandable that we are Athenocentric. But there's something to be learned from looking at it from um, the Spartan angle primarily. 
and trying to figure out what the Spartans were up to and what was driving them. And so I I just read Tom Holland's uh, uh, Persian Fire, which is about the first uh, 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 war, Persia versus all of Greece. And most people, when it's taught, they don't teach it the way you teach it, Paul Ray. No. No, 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 no. Uh, Again, you know, I do – one of my volumes has to do with the Persian Wars. And, again, I'm looking at it from a Spartan perspective, uh, not from an Athenian perspective. Most of our sources are Athenians or or are from Athens or from people very closely associated with Athens like Herodotus. But they provide us with enough information – to see what the Spartans are up to. And, the, and by the way, in the Persian Wars, Spartans provide the leadership both on land and sea. And they put together the coalition that defeats the Persians. Uh, and they cooperate very closely with Themistocles. But of course, after the Persian Wars, the cooperation between Athens continues for a while and then it breaks down. And that's how you get the first Attic War. What, was that uh, inevitable, Dr. Ray, that it would break down because the systems yes, were so, so different? And tell people why that is. Because a lot of people think there are some inevitable conflicts ahead for the United States. I don't think the dissolution of the, the Republic is inevitable by any means. But there is some inevitable conflict ahead with the People's Republic of China. Yes, I think so, too. Um, uh, the reason it's inevitable is the character of the different regimes. Uh, the Spartan regime, Sparta's a satiated power, and, and the reason is every Spartan is in some sense an oligarch. That is to say, he's a gentry person, uh, an aristocrat with people who work under him, uh, helots, and they're numerous enough to be a real threat, and so the Spartans are very cautious. And they're interested in a kind of Peloponnesian isolationism. Uh, so they really don't want to go out and fight the Persians in Asia and in uh, the Eastern Aegean. Um, the Athenians do that, and they're very eager to do that. Athens is it runs along the sea. It becomes commercial. Uh, it's expansive, uh, and it takes to the sea uh, at the battles of Artemisium and, and, and the Battle of Salamis. Very well. And so the Spartans let the Athenians do their defending of Sparta for them. Uh, And the price is that Athens grows in power. uh, And the Athenian aggressiveness is just astonishing. Uh, And you can see that in Pericles' funeral oration, which which you mentioned, or in his final oration, where he refers to Athens' empire as a tyranny. Uh, and he says uh, it's unjust to, uh, to hold it, but it is unsafe to let it down. That that line is borrowed by Thomas Jefferson, by the way, about slavery later. Um, uh, and so the Athenians encroach on uh, the sphere that is absolutely vital for Spartan security. And they're bound to do that over and over again. Inevitability will define our conversation next segment. Dr. Arn and Dr. Paul Ray, as we continue to talk about the Peloponnesian Wars by Thucydides. Don't go anywhere, America. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue, except the Hillsdale.edu. I'll be right back with our two scholars after this. Welcome back, America. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. One of our favorite colleagues of his, uh, Professor Paul Ray, Dr. Ray, uh, is just an accomplished classicist and a wonderful radio guest. We always enjoy having him on. Dr. Arn, um, something Dr. Ray just said made me think anew, as he always does. 
We do have a cultural bias built in towards the Athenians, even though we celebrate the 300 Spartans and every boy, you know, who got a comic book loves the loves the story. Right. But we have a cultural bias towards the Athenians when we read this, don't you think? Well, yeah, but I, I think we're dual minded about it, too, because uh, if you compare Pericles funeral oration with the high war speeches of Winston Churchill, Pericles seems cocky. Uh, also, he uh, congratulates the Athenians on gifts that they have by nature that they don't really have to work for. He exhorts them to keep those gifts, but, uh, but he also, you know, we're the man. And, you know, we can't really lose this war, and they proceeded to do exactly that eventually. So that's a difference, right, a big difference. In Churchill, it's always an exhortation to live up to our calling. And we have to do that in this age, too, as our fathers did before us. So it's more pious, is, is Churchill. And then the other thing is, we really like the Spartans when we get in the middle of a war. And we love to congratulate ourselves in the way the Spartans did, that our way of life produces war, you know, effectiveness in war. The Athenians do that, too, but on a different basis, I think. And, uh, and so I think, you know, we're drawn. I mean, that's why Paul Ray can write five books about Sparta and people buy them, right? Sparta's great, too. But Athens is like us in that it's a sea power and a great commercial power and a much more open society than Sparta, although very closed compared to the ones we have today. And so, yeah, we affiliate with that. But you've really got to admire those Spartans. Uh, I'm going to come back to that. Dr. Ray, uh, I've got to ask you if you have revisited the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides with the plague that that plagued Athens uh, in mind, given the virus that plagues the world right now. Oh, yeah. I wrote a piece for the Federalist on that Uh, and uh, arguing that our our plague uh, is nothing in comparison with theirs. The plague in Athens killed one third to a quarter of the population. Gosh. And it did so very rapidly. Uh, And, uh, uh, you know, our current plague, um, it's an awful thing for people my age. I'm 71. Uh, It's an even worse thing for people over 80. It's a terrible thing for anyone who has what they call a comorbidity. That is to say a previous condition uh, that, that makes them vulnerable. Uh, it's actually less serious than the flu for younger people. Uh, kills fewer of them uh, is 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 less of a horror. Uh, the the um, whereas this thing this thing really it it, it not only destroyed um, lives, it also destroyed morale and morality. Uh, people began misbehaving uh, on a very grand scale. Um, they would uh, they would take the dead bodies of their kinsmen and throw them on funeral pyres that had been built for other people. Uh, they would neglect their kinsmen. Uh, they would it was sort of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. So they would do things in public that they had never dared to do in private. Uh, it, it was it was morally a nightmare because of of the breakdown in uh, all the kind of social supports for law-abidingness. 
Uh, right. And Thucydides compares the war with that. Over time, the war does exactly the same thing to people because you don't know if you're going to live from one day to the next. So you want to get your enjoyment now and you do shameful things. Dr. Arn, you mentioned earlier that the great advantage of history is that it's complete. And we know what the plague did to Athens. We also know that Athens recovered and went on to fight for another, I mean, two decades. But long wars are not what democracies are geared up for, and they are not certainly geared up for them when there is a plague at the same time. How have you been thinking about the plague of Athens in the, in the era in which we live? Well, I, I think Paul's right. Also, I think we have two plagues, and one of them is the cure for the plague is a plague. And uh, if we would, in my opinion, if we would absorb the data that is coming out, and there are really serious immunologists who are broadcasting it now against political pressure, you'll find out that if it's a very grave disease for identifiable people, you should spend your money protecting them. And, and instead, we're confining people to quarters. And that's not good for people. People need to move. They need to go and make a living. They need to contribute. And so this converting the American people into a passive group, whereas what I think is they should be making an urgent effort to help those who are vulnerable. And they are, I, they, Paul said who they are, right? I read today because I got a bunch of experts advising me about the college. Uh, one of them wrote yesterday that uh, asthma is not a comorbidity. Uh, diabetes very much is. And, uh, and so if you're old and you've got diabetes or you've got a, another respiratory illness than asthma, this man says, then you've got to watch it. And in general, if you're old, you should just watch it. Now, I'm so glad to hear that because that's the only thing I've got, which is asthma, but it's pretty bad. Dr. Ray, I've got to ask you because I want to tease out similarities and differences in what we learn. When the plague overwhelmed Athens, did Sparta lean off? It's pressure on them in the war. Because this, this plague occurs in the war. Does Sparta say, yeah. oh, that's too bad. Athens is having a plague. We won't attack them. Uh, because I'm thinking again, uh, PRC in the United States. Uh, no, <laughs> they did not. However, they were a little more cautious about invading Attica because they, they were worried they'd get the plague themselves. It was tremendously contagious. Uh, more contagious than the flu, more contagious than the coronavirus. Uh, so they were um, uh, they were a little bit cautious, but no, they they, they uh, you know they weren't Christians. Yeah, and uh, so Ch the point being, don't expect the PRC to cut us a break. Oh no, there's no chance. Uh, the, and th and that do is they to enjoy me enjoy what we're suffering. Yes, they do enjoy what we're suffering. Did Sparta enjoy Athens agony? We. We don't know, um, but they were very angry with Athens. Um, uh, so uh, quite possibly so. Now, it led them to misinterpret things. They thought the Athenians responded to the first round of the, um, the first wave, and there was a second wave in this case, uh, by suing for peace. And the oh. Spartans thought, we got them now. And so the Spartans continued the war. Uh, in fact, they didn't have a plan for winning the war. And that's one of the things Thucydides makes evident to us, uh, that Spartans thought invading Attica once a year would do it. And 
Uh, there was no way. The Athenians were prepared for that. They had long walls so that they turned the city of Athens almost into an island, connecting it with the Piraeus, their port on the Saronic Gulf. Uh, so it, one of the reasons that the first part of the war, the Archidamian War, went on for 10 years rather than, say, three or four years was what the plague did to Athens and the, and, and, and the attendant miscalculation on the part of the Spartans. Yeah, Dr. Arndt, if there's ever been an argument for classical education, it is playing out right now, which is study that which is complete so that you are prepared for that which is just beginning. Yeah, and, you know, just take the broad things, right? First of all, Athens and Sparta are remembered now 2,000, 2,500 years later, right? And there was greatness in them. And so you can kind of understand what the elements of that greatness is. And you can measure it in Thucydides better than anywhere else because you see both the greatness and the limits to it. And, uh, and you know, there's huge lessons for us. We, I think we... You know, this is the social media age, and we think that we can fix age-old problems in a week if we just talk about them or rant about them often. So, yeah, that's, you know, it, it will, it sobers you right up if you, if you do that. And also in the best souls, it makes you think uh, these, these are the stages that human beings are meant to play on. And Thucydides is an example of both of those. Thucydides is like Xenophon, whom we'll talk about next time, because Xenophon was a student of Socrates, and he wrote, you know, one of the three people who wrote the most important things about Socrates. And he was a public man, right? He was a thinker, and he was a public man. He was a warrior, and he was a statesman. Well, uh, Thucydides is like that, too, right? And so he's both a thinker and a man of action, and so his relations of action, he's like Winston Churchill, is like that, too. So those are very valuable people to read. Uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Ray, we've got about a minute left in this segment. We'll come back and tell people uh, how the war turned out. But uh, we know the names Themistocles and Pericles, uh, and, we, and we know the, the, the great rogue next week, Alcibiades. But do we know any Spartans? I mean, does anyone just leap out of you other than the fellow at the past? I mean, does someone stand out in Western yes. culture? Who? In Thucydides, there's a figure named Brasidas. He pops up very early in the war uh, as uh, a, a man of great audacity and tactical understanding. Uh, we later find out he has strategic understanding as well. And he talks the Spartans into sending him alone with a group of freed helots and some mercenaries up into Thrace, which they can get to by land. It's the one area within Athens' uh, dominion that can be reached by land. And he goes up there, and he begins taking cities away from the Athenians, including uh, their, the greatest gem in their crown, which is Amphipolis on the river Strymon, which is near Goldfields, uh, that that are um, on the northern side of Mount Pangaeum. It's, it's sort of right next to it. Uh, and he does it alone. Um, uh, you know, and then there's another figure the Spartans send to Sicily when the Athenians get themselves involved in Sicily uh, alone. And he manages to put uh, strength into the Syracusans uh, and to guide them in such a way that they defeat the Athenians. 
uh, in Sicily. And Thucydides makes it perfectly clear they would have lost had this had the Spartan one not arrived. Spartiate huh. not shown up. All right, we, when we come back, we're going to draw some lessons out of this book, which is a great read, probably a great course to take with Professor Ray. Remember, all things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu. Come right back for more with Paul Ray and Larry Arn on Thucydides. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Professor Paul Ray, Dr. Ray is, is a great uh, teacher at Hillsdale. We're talking this week, next, and maybe beyond, I'm not sure, about the Peloponnesian War. It's so definitive, and Thucydides' book, The Peloponnesian War, so central to it. Uh, uh, Dr. Ray, you've got a lot on your plate, obviously, a new book coming out, the, the, the Sparta's Second Attic War next week. It's available right now, and Dr. Ray is spelled R-A-H-E, uh, if people want to go to Amazon and get it. Uh, I am wondering, you've got a lot of projects, but it would be very useful if there was a young adult version of the Persian Wars and the Greek Wars that would be like the Iliad and the Odyssey children version or Charles and Mary Lamb's Shakespeare, just a way for kids to get into this. And, and uh, does anything like that exist? Not to my knowledge. You know, lots of things have been written, but I, I, I don't know if there's been anything done, maybe in the 19th century. Think about uh, that. I think it would be a magnificent book to have for youngsters. I mean, just because there's so much there that they would learn in the way we learn the Iliad and the Odyssey, slowly, right? Slowly. Yes. Um, so, so, Dr. Ray, would you finish out the war's arc for us? You just mentioned the expedition to uh, Sicily, which ended in disaster for the Athenians. What happened in the end? Well, Thucydides pitches it in such a way that you think immediately of Herodotus and of the Persian invasion of Greece. Uh, and he does it by showing you uh, that, the, without ever telling you, but you, once you see it, it's perfectly clear what he's doing, that the departure of the Athenian fleet from Athens is an echo of the departure of, of the Persian fleet and the Persian army uh, from the Hellespont. Uh, and what, ha- what happens is... Uh, uh, they begin with the idea of an expedition of 60 ships. It's a crazy thing to do. They've lost a lot of their population 10 years before, and it hasn't fully bounced back. They have spent a great deal of money on the first stage in their war with Sparta, and and, and their reserves are not especially great. Um, but they're so full of themselves and so full of a kind of erotic desire for empire that they go along with this. And a fellow named Nicias, who uh, the, the proponents of Alcibiades, Nicias is on the other side. And he says, you really, if you're going to do this, he's trying to talk them out of it, you need to send a lot more people. And what they respond, uh, Thucydides tells us, an eros for the expedition fell upon the Athenians. Um, a lust for it. And what happens is they vote to send 100 ships. Uh, and many more hoplites, and they send cavalry and so forth. And so they make a tremendous commitment a long ways away. Uh, and as you would expect, they have logistical problems. They don't have steamships. <laughs> they, they don't have airplanes uh, to, to get uh, materiel and men and so forth from Athens uh, halfway across the Mediterranean uh, to Syracuse is difficult and dangerous, uh, especially uh, except you know, especially in the winter months. And the winter months are more than half of the year. 
they get there, and uh, there is a disagreement among the generals. Uh, and um, the best thing they could have done was a surprise attack on Syracuse, uh, because the element of surprise is a force multiplier. Uh, but they put that off, and they do it methodically. And in the meantime, the proponent of the expedition, Alcibiades, is recalled to be tried at Athens. Um, and so the thing moves along slowly, uh, and they begin a siege of Syracuse, and they need to build a wall around the city of Syracuse to wall off the Syracusans so they can hold them by both sea and by land and starve them out. And that's when this one Spartan shows up. And that's and when it, it goes to hell. And Athens loses, right? They not only lose, they lose almost all the ships and almost all the men. Now, 100 ships means uh, 20,000 men. There are 200 uh, men per ship. Athens at the time of the Persian Wars only has 30,000 adult males. Now, some of the people rowing on these ships aren't Athenians. But say even if a third of them are Athenians, say six or 7,000 Athenians, plus 5,000 hoplites. Uh, not 5,000 hoplites. Yes, 5,000 hoplites. Uh, 12,000 Athenians. And let's say the Athenian population grew but then declined because of the, uh, of the plague. Uh, you're talking about Athens losing a third to a half of its remaining adult male population. And, that and is, that's what happens. That's it. Dr. Oren, 30 seconds. We'll come back next week to talk about one of the central characters. Uh, a warning against long expeditionary wars, correct? And that's a message you used to take into the Bush White House, I believe. Oh, yeah. It, uh, you know, Churchill, that's another difference, right? Churchill was very cautious about long wars, and the, the two that were foisted on him, he actively tried to stop for years before they occurred, the First and Second World Wars, and only when he was cornered would he carry on with a thing like that. And so we, you know, hubris, excessive pride, was characteristic of both, well, especially of the Athenians. When we come back next week, Alcibiades is our guy, and we'll tell you what he did in this long war with Dr. Ray and Dr. Arndt. 